Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, and welcome, everyone. We're going to officially start the meeting. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. The club is online at commonwealthclub.org, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I'm John Bolin, president of KQED and member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest, Guy Kawasaki, a longtime leader in the Bay Area technology community and a successful author. Today, Guy is chief evangelist of Canva, an online graphic design tool, a brand ambassador for Mercedes-Benz, and an executive fellow at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He is perhaps best known for his role in helping market the Apple Macintosh computer in 1984. Guy is the author of 14 books, including his newest, Wise Guy, which discusses the personal experiences that have inspired him over his prominent career and personal life. This book is available in the lobby, and Guy will be signing the book after his talk. Guy, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. And I'm actually going to start with a a question about your name, because I don't know how many people have had a chance to read the book yet, (laughs) but I'm old enough to remember that on every New Year's Eve on television, Mm -hmm. we used to have Guy Lombardo uh, celebrating the New Year coming in. And you are named after Guy Lombardo, yes, which I found not, was one of the most surprising things in the book. So tell <laughs> us, how did a Japanese-American guy from Hawaii <laughs> yes. end up being named after Guy Lombardo? Uh, my father was someone who loved music. He played several instruments. Uh, he attended Berkeley in, um, in Boston. And he was friends with Guy and Carmen Lombardo. And so... Uh, I was either going to be named Guy or Carmen. (laughs) So given those two choices, uh, I'd pick Guy any day. And so that's why. And the irony of that is I have zero music ability. And how how did he meet them? At at Berkeley? I have no idea. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, that's an amazing story. This is your 15th book. Yes. And actually, we were talking in in the uh, green room about how does somebody with your career and everything you do write 15 books? So where, where do you fit that into your schedule? Yes, I, I've asked myself that too. Uh, well, first of all, I need to burst the bubble. Uh, it's not like I have a day job where I go to a building and I'm working there 60 hours a week and then I go home and then I write. So when I'm in town, I'm at home. And so that has a lot of time. Now, having said that, you think, well, so guy, it's easy for you to write because that's what you do when you're at home. The problem is that uh, this is one of those things about you should do as I'm telling you to do as opposed to what I do. So the way it works for writing is you should wake up in the morning and get your two or three or four pages done. And then the rest of the day you can screw around. That's what you should do. I, on the other hand, I get up. I make my son breakfast, I take him to school, I go to a coffee shop, and I tell myself to write, but what I do is I check email, and I check social media. Three hours later, (laughs) it's time for lunch. (laughs) 
So I eat lunch, and then I tell myself, okay, now you're going to write. What do I do? I check email and social media. Then, so now it's 4 o'clock. I pick up my son. I come home. We eat. I say, okay, now I'm going to do it. No, but I check because I get a lot of email every day and a lot of social media. And so around 10.30, I can finally write. But then I'm so tired that I can write for about an hour. So that's truly what I do. So it takes a long time. It takes a long time. <laughs> and for those of you who are aspiring writers, um, if you wait for that perfect day to write the book that's in you, and this perfect day would be when you know, your kids have 4.0 GPAs, 1,600 SATs, and you're trying to weigh between Stanford and, I won't say Yale or USC, Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, uh, and your house is clean and the dog hasn't pooped inside, and, and you're going to sit down on your windswept patio overlooking the ocean, and you're going to get out your Mont Blanc pen with its 18-carat nib fountain thing, and you're going to use parchment made by Tibetan monks, and you're going to craft your book, that day will never happen. Uh, I will tell you that I, would, I think about 25% of my books are written on United Airlines. Um, and in fact, I would say that it's taken me longer to write books now because airlines have Wi-Fi. And you can do the email. <laughs> yeah. So if airlines didn't have Wi-Fi, I could spit out a lot more books. But now, guess what? I get on the airplane. What do I do? Email and social media. So uh, I, I've actually bought some applications. One is called Freedom that you can block sites. And the only way you can unblock the site is to reboot your computer. So you would list you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and, and block them so that you cannot interrupt yourself, right? So it's a self-control mechanism. Well, if it were self-control, I wouldn't need it. <laughs> <laughs> so why this particular book at this time? Because we were talking that this is different. It's very personal. Yes, it's, it's very personal. personal stories. Um, why uh, the 15th book in 2019 is, is, is Wise Guy? Well, uh, it's, it's a Venn diagram. Okay, so it's the intersection of three things. One is that... I had something to say. The second is that I could convince the publisher to give me a royalty, <laughs> I mean a deal. And the third, that I, I really had an interest to do that. So I'm 64 years old, and so it's taken me this amount of time to accumulate this wisdom. And I'm in this window right now where I've accumulated the wisdom, but I'm not so old that I've forgotten the wisdom. So I had to thread the needle and write this now. And I was inspired by uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul, which mm -hmm. is a collection of people's stories with wisdom. Uh, the difference between my book and Chicken Soup for the Soul is Chicken Soup for the Soul is a lot of contributors. And this is all me. And uh, at, at one time, I pitched my publisher on naming this book Miso Soup for the Soul. <laughs> but they didn't go for that. Um, so that's... It's That's, also you, and, and, and actually each nugget of wisdom is based on some personal experience you had or yes. something that happened to you. And I, as I was going through the book, and, and as I said to Guy, reading it in one weekend, there's a lot in the book. And I wondered, have you been telling these stories and, and, and sharing these nuggets of wisdom your whole life? Or did you have to go back? Or did you keep a journal? Or no, how, did I, you, how did you... 
like I said, Dredge up all I that. had to thread the needle of getting it down on paper before I forgot it. So uh, I, I basically sat down, and I, I tell a lot of stories in my speeches, but these are so these are like the best of. And then I had to fill it out because I didn't want the book to be you know totally weighted towards business or totally weighted towards parenting or something like that. So I had to kind of balance it out. And uh, I've had a very interesting life. Now, um, I, I don't want to give the impression that this is my memoir or autobiography in the, cell, in the sense of Nelson Mandela or, you know, Michelle Obama even, uh, because I haven't had that kind of life, right? I've, I don't have this, this story at the extreme of overcoming poverty or illness or crime or drug addiction or anything. I just had a nice Middle class, lower class life. A lot, so of, on lot that, of good fortune. Yeah, I had a lot of good fortune. And on the spectrum of it, you know, one extreme where you, you land at Ellis Island or, you know, the, the south of Arizona with nothing and you make yourself into something. The other extreme being Donald Trump Jr., I'm in the middle. Um, <laughs> and, and the format seems pretty unique to me with with the shaka and 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 the the wisdom nuggets yeah coming the how did you decide to do that well, I'm, I'm into ease of use because of my macintosh upbringing and so um i, I hate reading blog posts or books where i really have to dig for what is the author's main point so my book is so blatant so the way i do it is i tell the story and at the end I got this little shaka symbol, and I tell you, this is the wisdom from this story. Um, I don't leave any question. And only stories that were shaka-able, i.e. had wisdom, got into the book. I have many other stories, but they have no wisdom attached to them. (laughs) So those didn't make the cut. But any story with wisdom uh, made the cut. And you, you mentioned Macintosh. Apple looms large in the professional yes. life part of the book. You quit twice, yes, and you turned down a third opportunity. Yeah, you know what's right a, what's what's two hundred fifty million between friends. Yeah. And you had a lot of interesting encounters with Steve Jobs, and you gained a lot of wisdom through the Apple yes. experiences. Obviously, tell us why that. It just seems like a pivotal, incredibly important part of your life. Well, the Apple yeah, parts. I mean, arguably, without, without going to work for the Macintosh division, I would not be here. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be dead. I just wouldn't be on this stage. <laughs> uh, so, it, you know, I went to Stanford, and I picked the easiest major I could, which was, at the time, psychology. And uh, I'm Asian-American, obviously, and, and in the middle of the... 70s and 80s, you know, if you're Asian American, your parents want you to be a doctor, lawyer, or dentist. And I just didn't want to stick my hand in people's mouths or bodies, and so all that was left was law. So I went to law school to make my parents happy. I dropped out after two weeks because I just could not stand it. And then I, believe it or not, I went to the jewelry business, and because it's just a happenstance thing. When I was getting my MBA, I needed some kind of way to make some income, so I literally counted diamonds. And uh, I, went to the, I went to that jewelry company after I graduated, and then my friend from Apple, who was, who was my classmate at Stanford, asked me if I wanted to interview for Apple. And on paper, if you look at me, I had no computer science experience uh, in education or work. So on paper, I was the least likely person for Apple to hire. In fact, 
um, when my when Mike Boyce, who's the person who hired me, asked Steve Jobs what he thought of me, Steve Jobs said, "Well, I like him well enough, but I'm not convinced he's the best person." So, you know, you're betting your career if you on guy if you hire him. So that was the ringing endorsement I had from Steve Jobs. Uh, and what happened for me, I, I'm living proof that uh, without the right educational uh, background, without the right work experience, but I loved Macintosh. And so it was a religious feeling for me. It was the skies parted, angels started to sing when I first saw Macintosh. I was coming from you know, an Apple II world of 24 by 80 columns. You know, if you wanted to make graphics, you use X's and O's. And then when you saw Mac Paint and you saw Mac Write with multiple fonts, WYSIWYG display, WYSIWYG printing, integration of text and graphics, it was religious. It was religious. And so that's what enabled me to succeed because I was a zealot. I just fell in love with Macintosh. And and so it kind of made a lot of sense. You ended up being an evangelist. Yeah, you know, evangelism, for those of you who might not know Greek, uh, evangelism comes from a Greek word meaning bringing the good news. So at the start of my career, I was bringing the good news of Macintosh, uh, that Macintosh would make you more creative and productive. And so the difference between evangelism and sales is that evangelist has the other person's best interests at heart. So when I evangelize Macintosh, whether it was to a developer or to a customer, an end user, I really believed that I was doing it for their benefit also. I, I had the other person's best interests at heart, that you will be more creative and productive. And now at the end of my career, I'm chief evangelist for a company called Canva, which enables people to create graphics. And I feel the same way, that you know, Canva enables you to create great graphics and to be a better communicator. So don't get me wrong. It's good for me if you use Canva. It was good for me if you use Macintosh, but I have the other person's self-interest at heart. And that's the difference between evangelism and sales. And so originally, I, I'm tr- I was trying to understand evangelism. It was to get developers to create Macintosh, Macintosh software. Yes. Yes. And then was it eventually directly to the customer? To uh, the yeah. I, uh, back then, I became a, an avid supporter of Macintosh user groups. So Macintosh user groups were collections of people who loved Macintosh also outside of the company. And they would provide support. They would provide enthusiasm. They would provide camaraderie in a world dominated by IBM and Windows. And so we kind of banded together, if you will. So that's when I started interacting with the end user. But yes, my initial job was convince developers to write software for a computer that didn't really have an install base, didn't have the right tools to write software. It came from this flaky company out of Cupertino. So that's what I did. But it was good news. It was good news. And you were, you were, you were part of the, the original evangelist team. In other words... yeah. Tech evangelist. Well, Jesus was before, right, me, but yes, yeah. um, there were and the other apostles. Yeah, there was a two thousand year gap there. Um, so Mike Boyce was the first evangelist. I was the second one, uh, and a guy named Alan Rossman was the third one. And basically, Boyce started it. I took the credit, and Alan did the work. <laughs> if, if you want to properly <laughs> segregate it, <laughs> and 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 I also. Think I've seen evangelists at tech companies who are in, internal evangelists. In other words, they're evangelizing the, old the other thousands of employees. Yes, yes, which is a little ass backwards because I mean, if you think about it, um, 
one of my hesitations is that I don't think that evangelism should be simply a position. It should be a state of mind. And so everyone in a company should be evangelistic, not evangelical, evangelistic, okay? So, you know, in a, in a, in a company like Canva or a company like Lyft, everybody should believe that, you know, we're changing the world of transportation. You don't have to own a car anymore, you know, something like that. Um, so everybody should be evangelistic, though some people may have the title of evangelist. You know, as I was uh, reading the book, when I got to the end, there was a, a, a top 10 list. Yes. But prior to that, I thought you were kind of against top 10 lists. No, not at all. Because there were two top 11 lists. And, <laughs> well, I and, believe in under-promising and over-delivering. Because so. <laughs> you listed 11 lessons from Apple and 11 points that explain Silicon Valley. Um, there wasn't anything special about the number 11. You just... No, I, that's I just, how many there were. I, all my speeches have 11 points, although I tell every audience it's a top 10 because I like to overpromise. Oh, so there was. Excuse me, I said that completely it. wrong. I like to <laughs> overdeliver. Uh, overdeliver, yes. So I thought there, were, I thought there was something to. The I was 11. thinking I was a politician for a while. Yeah. <laughs> now, one of my favorite things from the the 11 lessons from Apple is customers. T- cannot tell you what they want. Talk yes, to us yes, a little yes. bit about that. So if you were to ask an Apple customer in the mid-80s what they wanted from Apple, they would have said better, faster, cheaper Apple II. And uh, what I learned is that people are unable to tell you how to truly innovate, to get to the next curve. They can tell you to take an Apple II and make it better, faster, cheaper, how to do that. But they can't tell you how to make something that is beyond the Apple II. And just as I think now, if you ask many Macintosh owners, not now, but a few years ago, if you ask many Macintosh owners, what would you like next? They would say better, faster, cheaper, bigger, you know, Macintosh. They wouldn't say iPhone, iPod, iPad. And if you ask Apple customers today, what would you like? They would say better, faster, cheaper, iPhone, iPod, iPad. They wouldn't ask for the next thing. Uh, It's very difficult to ask. So the question then becomes, well, if you can't ask your customers what they want and how to innovate, who do you ask? And the the answer to that question is, I don't think you ask anybody. You, You depend on your vision, your passion, and you just hope you're not the only nutcase that wants that. Um, and that's the genius of Steve Jobs, that he did, you know, Apple One, Apple Two, Macintosh. Uh, there were some bumps along the road, you know, Apple Three and Newton, Lisa. But you know, generally speaking... Yeah. It's kind of like the quarterback passing to where yeah, the receiver's yeah, going I mean, to he, be. He kind of knew what people I, were going to I know want. this can be considered negative, but in a sense, Steve Jobs was Tom Brady of computing. Um, I don't wrap your mind around that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and then, I'm sorry, Joe Montana. Yeah, that's true. Who's won more Super Bowls, Joe Montana or Tom Brady? I think Tom Brady. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, my friend Mario here is a hockey coach, and you know, there's the famous quote. I don't know if it's Gretzky or Gretzky's father, but you skate to where the puck's going to go, gonna right? Be. Yeah. I think that's a bullshit quote. Did he really say that? He did. Yeah. The, the, one of the other ones that I'd like you to talk a little bit about, and I've heard it before, and it's from your top 11 uh, points that explain Silicon Valley, is we fake it till we make it. Yes. What, 
What do we mean by that? Oh, by that we mean that uh, we fake adoption, we fake uh, the completeness of the product, we fake fake the viability of the company um, because fundamentally some things need to be believed to be seen. And so if I could convince people to believe in Macintosh, then they would write software. And if they wrote software, then Macintosh would really exist because the computer cannot exist until there's really software for it. And so I think we're outstanding. Uh, of course, you know, at one extreme, there's Theranos, right? So I'm not saying that's the Theranos phenomenon, but... I was wondering. Yeah, uh, you know, so... Not that kind of fake it. That's truly faking it, yeah. Um, I, I think... I think in Silicon Valley, the way it works is we throw a lot of stuff up against the wall. Some of it sticks. We go up to the wall. We paint the bullseye around it. We, say, we hit the bullseye. Well, <laughs> you can always hit the bullseye if you paint it after. I mean, that's that's, true. And, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting you get all unethical on me, but I, that's what startups are about. I mean, you have to. Um, the, uh, in the book, I tell the story of Pete Marwick. So Pete Marwick is the accounting firm. And we positioned Macintosh as a productivity tool, Fortune 500 MIS tool, initially anyway. And so whenever we met with the press, they would ask us, well, which Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 company is using Macintosh? And what we would do is we would stall for about five seconds, and then we'd say, well, (sighs) Pete Marwick, for example, and the stall was to imply that, ah, oh, there's so many examples. Which one should I tell you about? But in fact, Pete Mark was the only one. So Pete Mark was buying Macintoshes so that their on-site auditors could carry a computer into their audits and run a spreadsheet. It sounds like, well, what's the big deal? But back then, carrying a computer to your client and running a spreadsheet was a big deal. And so we would always say, Pete Mark, for example... Um, Simon Sinek uh, has this great video where he shows this one guy dancing in a field, right? And, and his point is that the one guy dancing in the field is just this nut. But when the second person joins him, it becomes a movement. And then everybody starts dancing in the field. That's faking it to you make it. You have to dance in the field. Here's a, a good question from the audience. Uh, Given your background coming into technology with the psychology degree, how would one without a background in finance, computer science, or sales, it says get into venture capital, but I think get into the startup world? Uh, Well, getting into the startup world, I I suggest that you uh, pursue what you love. I mean, if you're truly the founder, then I would say make the product that you want to use. Uh, I think that's what created Apple, you know, Steve and Woz. They didn't want to drive to Stanford, drive to NASA, work for HP. They wanted a computer that they could have in their house. So they built Apple One. Um, Jerry and David starting Yahoo, they wanted a you know, better tool to organize the Internet. So they created Yahoo. Sergey and Larry, better search tool, Google. So if you look at the huge tech successes, I think it's always... Two people creating the product that they want. And then you just have to hope that you're not the only two people who want to use it. Because uh, that could happen too. Uh, I think that's the richest vein. Now that's in sharp contrast to, well, let's look at the, you know, what's the growth market? What do the experts say? 
and let's create a tool, you know, because everybody says the Internet of Things is hot, so let's create an Internet of Things thing. Um, I don't think that works. I think you should not be market-driven. You should be, you know, passion-driven. Good advice. And speaking of good advice, you've given a number of many, actually, commencement speeches. Yeah. (laughs) And, And one of the questions from the audience is, what would you say to university students graduating this year and coming into the real world of Silicon Valley? Well, if I could take the caveat of this year out, um, what would I, what would I, because this is an interesting time. Uh, I, I would say that um, I think that the senior in college worries and tries to optimize that first, second job much too much. They're thinking that they have to f- find this perfect job because it's going to make their career or ruin their career. And I would make the case that, well, first of all, you won't even remember what your first job is, so it doesn't matter. But uh, I, I think that there's almost no downside. So let, let's take the extreme. So, you know, you really thread the needle and you just pick the next Google. And so you graduate from college, you go to work for the next Google, you know, I don't know, assistant product manager, quality control tester, whatever it is. And you get on that tsunami and five years later, you're worth 50 million bucks, right? So now you think, man, I really just threaded the needle. The other extreme is you go to work and you go to work for Terminals and, oh, my God, your CEO is arrested. The, the thing doesn't work. Walgreens is suing you. And you know, what? Oh, my God, you ruined your career. You know, your LinkedIn profile says uh, a leading medical device company in Silicon Valley. You don't want to use the T word. I, I would make the case that in the first case, when you pick the next Google in 25, you're going to be an insufferable orifice for the rest of your life. <laughs> On the other hand, if you go work for Terranos and you see the lies and you see what money drives people to do and you see that all these smart people on the board of directors, visionaries, famous people, just how could they be so stupid? How do they look the other way? So you can see how smart people can do stupid things, and you can see how people can lie and cheat and, you know, all smoke the same dope. And, I, and that might be the more instructive experience to go work for something that crashes. Um, so my, at those two extremes, I would just tell you that I, I don't think you should need to worry so much that uh, fundamentally, if you really want to boil down professions, you either have to be able to make something or sell something. And if you can do either of those two things, you're good to go. So figure out what you can make or sell. And I guess Jobs did both. Uh, I, I don't know about the make part. You know, I mean, <laughs> the beauty of Apple, in my humble opinion, is that there was one person who could make it, was the ultimate engineer, and someone who could sell it, Steve, the ultimate salesperson. And that's why it succeeded. If you have two engineers, there's nobody to sell it. And if you have two salespeople, there's nothing to sell. So you need one of each. That's the critical mass for a startup. There's a lot of good questions coming from the audience. This is, is there a need for cultural change in the Valley? And is the current model a role model for future startups? Um, you know, I, I, I think nostalgia is overrated, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I get this all the time that, you know, whenever <laughs> every, 
every generation looks back and says, wow, my generation, we really worked hard. You know, we were honest and hardworking and diligent and all that kind of stuff. But your generation, skinny jeans, you know, Herschel backpacks, avocado toes. You're all bullshit artists. You don't work hard like we did. And every generation says that. And so, you know, probably, to use a slightly different metaphor, when Gutenberg invented the printing press, probably all the people in religion said, this is the end of the world. I mean, people won't come to church anymore. They could get a Bible because it's printed. What a horrible thing. This is the end of civilization, the printing press. And then, you know, along comes desktop publishing, and then along comes blogging, and, and then every generation says, oh my God, desktop publishing, anybody could print a book now. This is the end of civilization. To use another metaphor, um, I think it's like music. So my father would look at, you know, I listened to Blood, Sweat, and Tears and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and he would say, what? This isn't music. This is trash, right? And the Beatles, what? This is like crazy people jumping around like maniacs on Ed Sullivan's show. You know, what kind of junk is that? You should listen to Guy and Carmen Lombardo, right? <laughs> and so right now, right now, you know, we're saying, like with rappers and stuff, what? And there's nothing but profanity. There's no music and whatever. But I, mark my words, okay? Someday, people in this audience, they'll be saying to their children, where are the talented musicians like my generation? Like Justin Bieber, that guy had talent. <laughs> you mark my words. You mark, I mean, think of this. Uh, I mean, obviously he has some pedophile issues now, but, you know, Prior to this year, many people said, look at the great music like Michael Jackson. Well, when Michael Jackson was first coming out, I don't think any of our parents said, wow, you know, this is thrilling. Um, so I think every generation says that now. You know, so Mark Zuckerberg is the bad guy and, you know, all this privacy stuff. But I mean, There are a lot of people who thought that AOL sucked and would be the end of the universe and MySpace and CompuServe. So every generation says that. Just chill out, man. (laughs) You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. <laughs> going back to uh, something I thought was interesting in the book is you're growing up in Hawaii. Yes. And the difference of being an Asian American or being a minority in Hawaii, and you described having a very different growing up experience yes. than if you had grown up in the States, yes. not really relating to not at all. what people experienced in the States. Why is that? Well... Uh, I grew up in Hawaii. I was born in 54. So from 54 to like 70 or 1970 or so, I grew up in Hawaii. And at that time, the Japanese Americans were the power elite of Hawaii. We ran Hawaii. My father was a senator, a very powerful man. And so I come to Stanford. I get off of Western Airlines, you know, airplane. I get in a van. I go to, I go to Stanford campus. First of all, I would say that's another religious moment in my life because Hawaii is a great place, don't get me wrong, but when I came to California, oh my God, man, this is it. I was made for California. I mean, 
There's like Porsches and Ferraris everywhere. There's beautiful blonde girls. I mean, this is it. I, this, <laughs> I was made for Hawaii. I mean, excuse me, I was made for California. And so, you know, that's, that's it was an eye-opening experience. That's what it was like for me. And those were the days. Uh, and and so, so that was also a pivotal experience. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was. Talk about the decision to go to Stanford and your father. Well, yeah, so I I got into Stanford and Occidental. I could have been president. Who knows, right? I went to Stanford, Occidental, and and University of Hawaii, and I could have played football at Occidental. I loved football. And I wanted to go to Occidental. My father basically said, if I want to pay tuition, you are either going to Stanford, the best school you got into, or the University of Hawaii for free. You are not going to pick a school based on where you play football. So my father forced me to go to Stanford, which is kind of bizarre. Like, parents now are paying $2 million to get their kids into Stanford. I was going to go to Occidental. So, uh, and that was a pivotal thing. So Steve Jobs and Apple's pivotal. That was pivotal. Um, It was, I I just have the greatest memories of Stanford. And um, I'll tell you, you know how... When you write a book like this or any book, there's the great temptation to reinvent history. So, you know, I always wanted to improve people's lives. I wanted to improve people's lives by helping make people more creative and productive with computers and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like Sandra Bullock in the beauty contest movie, you know, where you have to go up and talk about world peace. And, and so, but I, I will tell you, I'll fall on my sword here. Um, one of the lessons in the book is don't worry about what motivates you to study and to work hard as long as something motivates you to study and work hard. So yes, it could be a desire to dent the universe, change the world, increase people's productivity and creativity. But I will be honest with you. I did not care about changing the world. I just wanted to change the car. Because when I was a kid, somebody gave me a, a ride in a Porsche 911. And then when I was at Stanford, Mike Boich, is, Mike Boich came from a very wealthy family out of, of Phoenix, Arizona. And so I come from Kalihi Valley in Hawaii, which is, let's just say, kind of a ghetto. And um, so I, I go to Stanford, and one weekend, or one Thanksgiving, he takes me home to his house. And his house... The backyard of his house was the Arizona Biltmore Golf Course. <laughs> and that, like, warped my mind. I mean, and, and then his father drove a Rolls Royce, and his mother drove a Ferrari Daytona. And so one night we went to dinner at the Biltmore, and she asked me to drive her home in her Ferrari. <laughs> and let me tell you something. That changed my life because I decided I was going to be able to buy a car like that. And so... That was a fantastic motivational thing for me. So now, you know, Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador, I'm one of the few people in the world who gets paid to drive a Mercedes besides a Formula One racer. It's a thankless job, but somebody has to do this. And and so now, contrary to the legalities of doing what I do, and uh, before I was a Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador, a lot of car manufacturers used to send me all kinds of cars. And I would take all my kids' friends out in the car, and I would even let some of them drive them, which is really contrary to the document I signed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's because 
I want them, maybe 20 years from now, they're going to say, you know, once, man, my friend's father was Guy Kawasaki, and he had an Audi R8 once, and he let me drive it, and that R8 changed my life, and I studied hard, and I worked hard, and now I am successful because Guy let me drive his Audi R8 or his Mercedes-Benz AMG GT or something, so I'm doing it for the betterment of society. (laughs) Unselfish guy that I am, yeah. So cars and sports also have been with you from day one. Yeah, I... uh, Mario can attest that um, at 48, I took up hockey. So what and happened? You, and you're 65 now. Are you still I'm playing six, hockey? No. Okay. Well, I could, but uh, what, I'll tell you the whole story. So okay. at 48, I go to a San Jose Sharks game. And I'm from Hawaii, so there's not a lot of skating in my background. <laughs> not a lot of pond hockey in Hawaii. And so we go to this Sharks game, and my kids are 8 and 10, two boys. And they see hockey. And I'll tell you something, hockey is the greatest sport because like American football, there's about six minutes of action and about four hours of timeouts and advertising and all that, right? And then soccer, like everybody's just, you know, you fall on the ground, you writhe around like you've been murdered and then 30 seconds later, you're playing again, right? So it's like total BS sport. (laughs) But, But hockey, hockey has like, there's math, there's physics, there's contact. The ball never goes out of bounds because the puck hits, you know. And, and so it's just, it's like ballet and war combined. It is just a most beautiful sport. And so my kids saw the Sharks game with the action and the constant hitting and all that. And they tell my wife and I, we want to try hockey. Okay, we're Silicon Valley parents. We would never deprive our children of anything they ask for, <laughs> short of going to USC. So, <clears throat> so my wife says, all right, you want to try hockey? We try hockey. So we find out that Mario has this hockey class in San Mateo. And then my wife says, you know, guy, I don't want you to be like a typical Silicon Valley father. I don't want you on the sideline, on your Blackberry, looking up every once in a while to see if your kid's in the game. I want you involved in their lives. And I always listened to my wife. And so I took up hockey. And to show you how little I knew about hockey, we didn't even know that when you got new skates, you had to sharpen them. You know that, right? So we had to sharpen them the first time. And, and so they took up hockey, so I took up hockey. And I will tell you, the first time I stepped on the ice in skates, which, you know, I fell a lot, but it was religious. I said, well, this is a great sport. And so from about 48 to about 62, I loved hockey. I just played hockey all the time. I was never any good at it because taking up hockey at 48 is like 44 years too late. But... Um, <laughs> So then I just loved hockey. And another side story with Mario here, and this is not this is the Mario and Guy show, but so side, sto- side, con- side story to this is we have two kids, the two boys who take up hockey, and then we decide, well, let's, let's you know, do something good and do, for both of us, uh, let's adopt. We can help some kids out, right? So we adopt a little girl from Guatemala. 
And so after this long process, we go to Guatemala, and you have to pick up your child, and then you go to the American embassy. And so this, this orphanage sends us in a bus, to the, and there's another woman there picking up another girl. And I kid you not, we say to her, so where are you from? Oh, San Mateo. Like, <laughs> oh, what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. What's your husband do? Oh, he's a hockey coach. Oh, what's his name? Mario. So we're in the middle of Guatemala City, and this woman on the bus, adopting a child from the same place, is... So anyway, so that's the hockey story. I loved hockey. Um, and then, fast forward 14 years, uh, my daughter, the girl that from Guatemala, she falls in love with surfing. And so I said to myself, well, if I took up hockey for my sons, I don't want to scar my daughter by not taking up her sport. So I take up surfing, and then I just fell in love with surfing. Surfing is even better than hockey, Mario. <laughs> so, so now I'm just obsessed with surfing, and I, I surf you know, four or five times a week, and I just love and, and, and tell Tell us what paddle surfing is because i well paddle well, surfing is when that, you're on is a, that's the surfing you do no, no. not anymore paddle started surfing doing is that. when you on a paddle board with a paddle and you're standing up the whole time surfing surfing is when you're on a much right. smaller board lying down and you have to pop up um, and that's traditional surfing so and so did you go through a process of graduating from one to the other yeah because I, I okay so there's a transition period because I started paddle boarding because paddle boarding is very good for your balance and your core not two of my strengths as Mario might tell you so I decided to take up paddle boarding to increase my balance and core strength so paddle boarding was a means to an end to improve my Hockey. But then I was constantly humiliated by my daughter's surfing coach. Like, why was I such a kook paddleboarding? I should do what real men do, which is surf. <laughs> and so that's why I had to take up surfing. And then I am just obsessed with surfing. And um, it, how many of you surf in this room? God, none of, like a bunch, a bunch of losers in this room. So. <laughs> You have to take up surfing. Do not wait till you're 62 to start surfing. It isn't easy at that point. But you can start it. Obviously, I mean, well, now to finish the story, um, the, the theme, so there's some wisdom here. So one wisdom is, I think many Silicon Valley parents, but maybe in general parents, they often try to get their kids to take up what they took up, right? So Mario would get his daughter to take up hockey, and you know, programmer would get his daughter to take up programming, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. I have the opposite theory. My theory is I take up whatever my kids take up, because that way I don't have to force them, because they're not taking up what dad does. I'm taking up what they do. So it's a lot smoother that way. Having said that, my second oldest son has taken up wingsuiting. And that is what? And that is where I draw the line because I want to look good at my funeral. So, no wing. I, that's so, what, tell us what wingsuiting is. Wingsuiting is when you're like a flying squirrel. It's not skydiving. Skydiving, you jump out of a plane, pull the thing, you know. Wingsuiting is when you're flying along with. And then eventually you pull a chute, but 
It's very, very risky. Although he said it's not, but I mean, it is risky if you start trying to fly through rock formations and stuff. But if you just jump out of a plane in a wingsuit, it's safe. I hope that's what he, that's what he told his mother, anyways. <laughs> so this is an interesting question from the audience, and uh, I know from the book that you have dealt with this. Though you <laughs> wouldn't think you wouldn't think it. Mental health. How have you dealt with self-doubt during your career? Oh. Um, To tell you the truth, that I am not a very introspective, cerebral kind of person. I basically fall in love and act. So I fall in love with Macintosh, and I decide I'm going to go work for Apple. And I fall in love with surfing, and I surf. And I fall in love with hockey, and I hockey. And I, I fall in love with these software products, and I quit Apple to start a software company. I, I am not the kind of person who sits around, you know, cross-legged. Planning the next Planning, yeah, just worrying about my existential existence. I just, I just do. I'm just a doer. So I'm just an insipid kind of guy that is action-oriented. I don't have that. That's Sorry. Good <laughs> That's good advice. <laughs> this is an interesting question that comes up a lot. How do you create... Silicon Valley somewhere else? Uh, Well, first of all, you should aim higher. Um, (laughs) uh, I I think that um, the goal should never be to create Silicon Valley somewhere else. I mean, that that is me-tooism, not in the sexual harassment sense, but in the sense of you should aim higher, that you should seek your own level, your own unique value in the world. Uh, Having said that, um, I think what a lot of people do is there are a lot of companies, there are a lot of regions that send people to visit Silicon Valley and they want to learn how to recreate Silicon Valley, right? So, so they go to Google and they say, well, everybody's playing sand volleyball and there's sushi and Thai food and barbecue and, you know, and then, and then there's massage therapists and there's free oil changes and the dentist comes in a van and, you know, all this. So we got to go buy foosball tables and ping pong tables and then we can be like Google. And then they go to Facebook and say, oh, Facebook, they have wood shop and they have t-shirt printing. We have to add that too. And, and, and then they look at Steve Jobs and say, well, Steve Jobs, he wears, you know, Levi's 501s and he had New Balance uh, running shoes and he has a black mock turtleneck and he buys Mercedes, but he never licenses them because he thought that, you know, adding a license plate to a Mercedes reduced the aesthetic value of the car. So he would always trade cars before you had to register them. And <laughs> he drives in the carpool lane by himself and he parks in the handicapped slot. And so they look at all these kind of things, and they cannot separate causation from correlation. So, you know, they go back, and they, like, they buy foosball tables and ping pong, and they give free food, and they, you know, wear black mock, black mock turtlenecks, and, you know, and, and they're, they're just losers in black mock turtlenecks with more food and foosball tables. So I, I think the, the core value of Silicon Valley and the reason why it exists and where I would put my money to put all the, you know, where would I put the, the momentum or the, the effort is education. I would say that the key to Silicon Valley is the engineering school of Stanford. Okay, throw in Berkeley, you know, throw whatever. But I'm saying it's because of engineers. So you start with engineers. Engineers have good ideas. They want to start companies. And then everything else follows. Venture capital follows. All the pimps follow after that, okay? But the, the core 
is engineers. So if you want to have a successful tech region, it is your school. It is the engineering school of your universities. And I think that is the key. But many people, you know, they think, well, like some of the ridiculousness is um, we should encourage tech companies to have call centers. Because if you have a call center, then we can say Apple has a call center in, you know, God knows where, and that'll f- that will spur innovation. A call center is a call center. I mean, people call up and say, how come I can't buy iTunes right now, right? I mean, and if you take an extreme example, so, you know, let's, let's give Foxconn $3 billion so they can build flat panel TVs in Wisconsin. And then all those people working on the lines of making flat panel TVs, they're going to create a technical hub in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if they had taken that $3 billion and endowed the engineering school of the University of Wisconsin or whatever, I mean, that would be a much better way. It wouldn't cost them $3 billion. So I think the key is education. The second most important thing, believe it or not, I think is immigration. That um, it's just you need hungry, bright, maybe even desperate people. Right, so like my generation, (laughs) I'm third generation Japanese American, right? I kind of lost my edge. My kids, you think my kids are like desperate and you know, they're like, you know, because I've given them, you know, a lot, right? So, um, so I, I think you need first and second generation immigrants who. They come to America and like, oh my God, there's like, you know, we don't have to play bribes and, and there's laws here and you can get web access and, you know, all this great stuff. And so if you look at the great companies from Silicon Valley, it's Indian, it's Syrian, it's, you know, it's Russian, it's all that. It's not people who came across on the Mayflower three generations ago and, you know, endowed chairs at Dartmouth and Yale. It's people who two generations ago, they were flying out of helicopters in South Vietnam, the last helicopter out of the American embassy. And then, you know, somehow they get on a Navy ship. The Navy ship stops in San Diego, dumps them off in, I don't know, Bakersfield. And now they're working in Bakersfield, running a 7-Eleven. And the parents who are South Vietnamese, now they're running a 7-Eleven in Bakersfield. They're saving all their money so their kids go to, you know, I don't know, Bakersfield State. And then, and then they fall in love with engineering. They create the next great company. Man, that's the path. So I, this concept that, can I get political for a second? Yeah. I mean, this concept that we should close the borders and not encourage immigration is just ass backwards. And I just, I can't. I mean, why don't we just say to China and Canada, have the future. Just take it from us. We don't care. We're going to, our focus is on coal. (laughs) Coal is the future. I just don't get it. And actually, my next question was going to be political because (laughs) in in the book. You You know what I feel, right? You describe that prior to leading into the 2016 election. Yeah. 
you decided to use your social media accounts and really come on strong anti-Trump. Yeah, I, I'm just I was interested in the the decision-making process to do that. Yeah. And sort of the the effect it had. Yeah. Okay. So, um, as a Mercedes-Benz band ambassador, I have to go to Germany all the time. So I went to Germany and I had dinner with two friends, 40, 45 years old, and this is in in October or November of 16. And they say to me, you know, guy, to this day, we wonder about our grandparents. Like, what were they thinking? Why did they let Hitler take over? What did they, did they resist? Did they look the other way? Were there, you know, what, what happened? How could that have happened? And then they said to me, you know, guy, this is your 1930. Wow. And, and I said to myself, you know, do I want my grandchildren to ask, did grandpa resist? And so that's the day I decided I'm all in with Hillary. I went all in for Hillary. And obviously she lost. And then I said, well, then I, it's my moral obligation to resist. And, you know, so if you looked at my LinkedIn profile, <laughs> let's just say that it's not just covering business. It's about 90% politics in my LinkedIn profile. And that drives some people crazy. Um, some people say, well, this is LinkedIn. This is professional business. It's not like Facebook and Twitter. It's not political. To which my response is, so let's pretend Hillary was elected. And I was all resisting Hillary. Would we be having this discussion? And they never respond. And so... Um, and then some people say, well, Guy, why are you pissing off 50% of your potential customers and followers? Well, 50% of my potential followers and customers are not white nationalists. So I feel no desire to like, optimize my following. And I, I don't want my kids to tell their kids, well, you know, Grandpa really didn't resist because he was afraid of losing followers on Twitter. You know, that's just not acceptable. And so I'm all in. And, you know, has it cost me anything? I don't know. But I have not sold my soul. So I'm, I'm all into resistance. Uh, and, I, you know, I kind of got that from my father. My father just, he was an ass kicker. I mean, he would just not take any crap from anybody. And my mother and father taught me that. So, And, and that, and talking about the election and what happened and what's happened since brings up social media, something that you're on a lot, yeah. but something that's also very much a concern now because the white nationalists use social yeah. media as well. Just give us your take on, on the situation with yeah. social media and where that's okay. going, where it should go. So I, I think it's impossible for any social media platform to police their platform. No amount of AI, no room of 10,000 people looking at every tweet, every post, every video going live can possibly monitor that, all right? I don't think technology can do it. I don't think people can do it. Um, I also think that, you know, if you're going to err, you should err in the direction of freedom of expression, not in suppression of expression. Because, you know, then who gets to judge? If you say something anti-government, is it now not allowed on social media because you're the government? Hmm, that's an interesting, you know. So, uh, on the other hand, you know, you can't yell fire in here. So, so I think that what we have to do is we have to create 
a healthy attitude of skepticism in everybody. That whenever you read something, whether it's in Breitbart, Fox, New York Times, Washington Post, or USA Today, you should be skeptical about it. You should be skeptical of every tweet, every Instagram post, every everything. I'm not saying you should, I'm certainly not saying you should believe them all, but I'm also saying you should not disbelieve them all, but you should at least be skeptical. And so I think that is as good as it's going to get. And the, to do anything more would be, I think, suppression of expression. And so we have to train people, young people, to be skeptical. And if, if I may get on another soapbox for a second. So I was on the board of trustees of Wikipedia. And I will tell you that, you know, many people, because I was on the board, and I heard this many times, is like, even my kids, my kids tell me, they come home from school and they say, Dad, my teacher said, I cannot cite Wikipedia in a school report. And so I asked them, well, why did they say that? They said, well, because anybody can change anything on Wikipedia. It's the nature of crowdsource you know, information. Well, uh, let me tell you something about Wikipedia. So it, it's not exactly anybody can change anything. Anybody can try to change anything, but you have to cite a legitimate source. And it has to kind of survive the community reviewing it. So you know, to take an extreme example... If you went on Wikipedia and you said in the Planned Parenthood entry, Planned Parenthood sells baby parts, that would not last on Wikipedia for more than two seconds, okay? And so, to me, Wikipedia may be the purest form of information right now because it's hammered on by so many people. So you, you cannot say Planned Parenthood sells baby parts, um, so I think Wikipedia is one of the, the has has is one of the finest sources of information because you really it really reflects people going at it and coming out with something that's you know skeptical but not you know right or left. It's if I believe there is an absolute form called the truth, and I would think Wikipedia is as close as the truth. So you know it. I've, I've had meetings with teachers who've told my kids that. I said, so let me ask you something. So you're telling me that my kid can source and cite Fox and Breitbart, but not Wikipedia. Is that what you're telling me? Because Fox is a legitimate source of journalism, but Wikipedia isn't. And at that point, they kind of say, yeah, maybe you can cite Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> So I think, you know, you should look at Wikipedia. I think yeah. Wikipedia is and, a great... And, and interesting, on the social media side, it's really a matter of we, as users, need to do some work in terms of critical thinking and yeah. skepticism and, and research. And I think that's probably the hard part of it, is asking people to work well, at, instead of just taking what's Yeah, what but, comes. I mean, I don't see any magical cure. I don't see AI. I don't see 10,000 contractors in a dark room in Facebook looking at every story as curious. I think you just have to be skeptical of everything. And and that goes for both sides, right? So, you know, Joe Biden, this woman accuses him of kissing her. I mean, you got to be skeptical. You have to be skeptical of both of them. Biden saying he didn't do it and her saying it did happen. I don't know who to believe, honestly, but you know, some, the truth is going to come out at some point. It's going to be thrashed out. I would, you just need to be skeptical that just, you know, 
don't go on Fox saying Biden is over and don't go on CNN saying this woman was put up to do this by, I don't know, you know, Breitbart. I mean, you got to be skeptical is the bottom line. Hmm. NPR it, too. Right. No, no, I'm saying NPR. No, you should be skeptical. I, I go to NPR.org and I, I honestly, I, tell you, I believe everything at NPR. <laughs> really? Really, I do. I truly do. I know those people. They care so much about the craft of journalism and truth. I truly, and I truly do believe that. Um, well, we appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I give money without the pledge. And, oh, and, and I should say, Guy is a generous supporter of KQED. Thank you. Very Operators much. are standing by. If you setting a good example. If you call now, Microsoft will match you dollar for dollar. And you will get the Eton hand crank radio. <laughs> this is a $50 value. And in the event that North Korea launches a missile, our hand crank radio will still work. So you, you can tell this is a faithful Operators listener. are standing by. Even during pledge. Don't drives. let that matching pledge get wasted. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. You should have a celebrity, yes. uh, you know, bank. Then uh, I think we should bring you in. I, 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 you know the guy from uh, the guy from Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. He does Peter incredible. Sager. He does an incredible pledge drive thing. It's like you know, he's like, he just tells you like you're probably sick of hearing all of us say this. Just send us money now. We don't have to do this. I love that guy. You know. And of course, there are serious things in the book. There is a lot of humor in the book, too. There's a lot of time to laugh. And I never, I don't know whether anyone else knows this story, but I never knew that Mark Benioff was once known as Hillsboro Doughboy. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so Hillsboro Doughboy. Yeah, What's okay. That so here, we have to tell the whole story now. So when Mark Benioff was a freshman at USC, he got in legitimately. Um, nobody photoshopped his body on a football player or head, not body Um, so Mark Benioff was a freshman at USC between freshman and sophomore year he needed an internship as all kids do so we gave him an internship at Apple working in my department and so his summer internship was writing sample assembly language programs for Macintosh to demonstrate to outside programmers this is how you write assembly language programs for Macintosh so Mark Benioff, in case you're not familiar, um, is big and white and ample, <laughs> heavy set, shall we say. And so we came up, and he's from Hillsboro. And so <laughs> behind his back, we used to call him the Hillsboro Doughboy. After the Pillsbury Doughboy. That's funny. Why are you guys not laughing? That's very funny. <laughs> Fast forward. Now he's, you know, Mr. Salesforce, donor to the UCSF, and like he's, you know, billionaire, mega god, and all that. And so it's just very funny that, you know, the lesson there is be good to your interns because <laughs> someday they could <laughs> someday be. Someday they'll the, be in a giant building. They could have the, the tallest building in San Francisco. But an uh, even better story about Mark is that. Uh, obviously, that's decades ago, and uh, a few years ago, Mike Boyce's son, and then fast forward another couple of years, my son, both wanted to work at Salesforce. And so I sent an email to Mark, 
And, you know, within an hour of an email for Mike's son and my son, Mark Benioff had told the HR, VP of HR, you interview these two boys and see if we can fit them in. So he did not have to do that. So I, you know, so I guess the, the pills, the doughboy thing didn't the, bother him. That the doughboy came through. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he went, there's a lot of people who, you know, you, you, you could have done a favor for decades before who now are billionaires who would not answer your email. I mean, he did it right away. I mean, kudos to him. Um, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, we've reached the point where we're down to our last two, two questions. Minutes? Because I'm going to well, make why them... is there a, Why is there a limit on these things? I mean... <laughs> I think because the, you know, next radio program needs to come on. Oh, on oh. Can't we have the outtake version that goes an hour and a half or something? Actually, Look at all these people that came all this way. Let's actually, this will be reduced down from this, but... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there's editing, you know. You don't um, want to lose any Trump supporters as donors, do you? <laughs> no, that, that'll stay in. Do, do we have any? So some, some neat questions. What's your favorite surf, surfboard? My favorite surfboard? Um, From the audience. Uh, I have developed a relationship with Bob Pearson of Pearson Arrow. And if you're into surfing, Pearson Arrow is... It's the Mercedes of, of surfboards, and he's become a very good friend. And um, I, I will tell you that, uh, uh, you know, you heard about my Ferrari and Porsche story, right? So I love cars, but now <laughs> this is a kind of a 1% problem. As a Mercedes-Benz brand ambassador, I cannot drive anything else contractually. So I can't go out and buy a Porsche or a Ferrari or anything like that. So, so now, And on the other hand, you can get any Mercedes you want. So now I... I it's like I'm in a relationship, long-term relationship that requires fidelity. <laughs> so now I, just, I don't go out and buy cars. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, a custom surfboard is about 1500 bucks or so. And I get as much of a rush buying and designing and getting a custom surfboard as a car. It is just... It's just the endorphins kick in, and it's just a magnificent experience to custom order a surfboard and have it delivered. It's really, it's pornographic. I mean, it's just... <laughs> so last question, are, what are you thinking about for book 16? Okay, so book 16, first of all, I've said 15 times there will be no other next book, right? Because I like to write about things that I know. Um, so, the two questions are actually related. Uh, so, uh, how many of you are familiar with an author named John McPhee? So, John McPhee writes books that he, he does a very deep dive into a narrow subject. So, deep dive about Bill Bradley as a basketball player. Deep dive about oranges, the fruit. Deep dive about um, someone who is in New Hampshire who builds birch bark canoes. And I love John McPhee because of his deep dive in these subjects that are not of, I don't care about canoes, but I loved reading about how this guy makes birch bark canoes. So I want to write a book like John McPhee where I, I embed myself with Bob Pearson of Pearson Arrow 
and I find out how he shapes a surfboard, just like John McPhee finds out, figured out how the guy made birch bark canoes. The problem with this book is that there may be only five people in the world who care about you know, surfboard shaping, so that's five copies if I get them all. Um, but that's... I, we, we think you'll make it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, no, but you know, at, at this point, on the 15th book, <laughs> at some level, 64 years old, you know, two-thirds of my life is over. And do whatever the hell I want. If I want to write a book about surfboards, yes, right. yes. <laughs> go for it. Our thanks to Guy Kawasaki for joining us tonight. Is we it also, gavel time? It's gavel time. <laughs> we also thank our audiences here and on radio, television, on the internet. I'm John Bolin, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. <laughs> thank you to Guy. Thank you.